Hello and welcome to another BJ Psych Advances podcast. My name is Oliver Gell Grant and today I'm joined by Dr. Melanie Temple, who is a psychiatrist and psychotherapist working in community psychiatry for the Ministry of Defence. She has a background of working in complex trauma and worked for many years in NHS complex trauma services. Melanie, thank you very much for joining us. Hi, thanks for inviting me. Not at all. So today we're going to be discussing your new article, which is in BJ Psych Advances, called What is it about dissociative identity disorder, a patient and clinician perspective? So tell us a little bit about your article. Um, so it was basically a response to an article that had been in the BJ site previously, which had commented and made particular views on um, DID and more specifically kind of patients experiencing that diagnosis um, and also in relation to clinicians working with that diagnosis that just felt difficult I suppose and certainly working with a group of patients I was at the time felt they needed to have a voice in response and that's really where the paper came from. Um, I was the support to the patient voice really but also the uh, as, as a clinician I didn't particularly like being called a fanatic and I thought well no I'm just trying to do a job actually mm. so the the paper's really about that. Mm. I should have said uh, that your paper of course is a response to the paper from uh, Professor Joel Paris uh, dissociative identity disorder validity and use in the criminal justice setting and uh, as, as is probably apparent to listeners views on dissociative identity disorder within uh, professionals are quite polarized uh, and people seem to sort of come down fairly strongly on one side or the other. And your experience, I, I guess, is that you have worked with people with this condition? Um, yeah. And uh, to be honest, I didn't used to have any view on this condition because we didn't really have any training on it. You know, in the UK system, it's not really there. You know, they talk about depersonalization, derealization, and this doesn't really come up in training. So for me, it, I didn't really have any opinion on it. And it was was only from uh, initial experience with patients who I, I couldn't understand or couldn't kind of fit the patient into what we were traditionally working with and in discussions with colleagues that started to look at the diagnosis in more detail and started to work with it. And I'll be quite honest, the first few times was on the basis of reluctance that I couldn't make it fit with anything else. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I think it's a really difficult one because it isn't something we use regularly in UK practice and, mm. and it's not really taught. Um, but I'm clear that having done the work I've done with the patient group for the last, you know, certainly the last seven, well, 10 years now, that it's there. Now, mm. I'm quite open to the idea if somebody can come up with a, a better descriptor or something that still fits the patient's. I'm open to using whatever. Mm. I, my position has always been as a clinician on the ground, doing the best for my patients. I don't consider myself an expert. I'm certainly not um, a researcher. You know, I work with what we're given. There are, you know, esteemed colleagues a lot more um, experienced and clever than I am who do all of that stuff. And I guess those of us on the ground rely on the, the uh, diagnostic manuals to work with don't necessarily question them work mm. with it I assume you know whether I'm right or wrong but I assume on the ground that that's already been done somebody else has done that so we work with what we've got and I guess for me 
it became clear that actually that that diagnosis that is in the books that I'd never looked at that we'd never really talked about actually there were some patients that fitted that mm. What is your clinical experience uh, of the phenotype of, of DID, the way that people are presenting? I suppose that the reason I ask that question is one of one of the key criticisms that people that think that this diagnosis has no place in, in manuals make is that this is a diagnosis that you find quite often sort of post hoc, if you see what I mean. So after some period of treatment, the diagnosis and maybe the clinical phenotype is, is reached upon. What's, uh, I guess, your experience of, a, if there is such a thing, a typical DID presentation? The difficulty is it probably isn't a typical one. Sometimes it is in your face. It can't be anything different, you know, and that often is the patient who is in crisis, who is currently very unwell. Um, almost a bit like, you know, for some patients who have psychosis, their presentation could be very quiet and it's in the background and we have to really look for it. Um, or if they're very florid and unwell, it's there, it's obvious. And, you know, it, it doesn't take much questioning. In fact, sometimes no questioning to know that it's there. And my experience of DID is exactly that. And, for... and a, fl- a florid DID presentation would be someone presenting, correct me if I'm wrong, this might be completely wrong, would be someone presenting in a completely different personality than that which you know they've spent most of their life is is that it yeah well on a oral almost an unstable presentation where they are um distressed they may be there may be self-harm there may be things happening they don't want to happen they're having amnesic periods they're so they're in chaos as much as anything else and for you as the clinician you may you may see them and each time you see them, the experience of that interaction is different. And within the interaction, it might be different. In fact, for one of the most unwell patients, it was, you know, within a 60 minute interview, the patient would change and fluctuate and would be very confused because there would be amnesia to the different presentations, would become very distressed because as she would put it, I'm completely mad, I've lost the plot you know, what is wrong with me? So I think the thing I really struggled with in the description in the Paris article was this idea of the 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 dramatic patient that wanted it. Now, granted, I have met a few of those. <laughs> As When you start working this area, you get asked to see patients who think they have this. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I guess one of the biggest distinctions, and in fact, I know certainly colleagues in Holland have raised this, and in fact, I've tried to pull together a scale to assist with this, is the patients who want it normally don't have it. Mm. In fact, most patients who have this desperately don't want it and would do anything to not have it. And in fact, certainly for several of them, you spend quite a lot of time working to help them identify that this is what's wrong because it feels completely mad you know for the patient it's so distressing I mean I think Amy obviously my co-author one of the things she put really well in the article was this experience of coming round from an amnesic episode finding yourself in the middle of something or having done something that you wouldn't choose to do that you wouldn't want to do clearly you have done it no question you've done it but then having to work out what to do as in terms of what the outcomes or the you know sort of the the issues that come from whatever behavior it was but also trying to then understand 
yourself in that and how to be in control of that when you actually don't remember any of it in the first place. Mm. And, and is it for you clinically, is, is the amnesia of these episodes the defining feature of, of DID that distinguishes it maybe from you know, a, 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 an extreme presentation of a personality disorder, for example? Yes. Yes. So the, the key um, element in it is that amnesia. So the the patients with dissociative based borderline, um, borderline's the most obvious one, but, you know, certainly in personality disorder is there's there's still a sense of it. There's still a, you know, and if you talk it through um, and it's often you know, to, to use the words catch out is, is quite harsh. But for those patients who have come really wanting this, um, one of the things often you do is the interview, a multiple set of interviews going over the same thing. And you start to hear that, no, there is a connection and it is there. And yet, actually, if you did the same thing with somebody who has the true amnesia, there's just nothing. And in fact, mm-hmm. what happens is they become more and more distressed because you're just reinforcing there's nothing and mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. not helping. So yeah, the, the, the key, uh, the key distinguisher certainly for DID is that amnesia to function. So mm-hmm. there is clear functioning happening and they have absolutely no memory. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, as we treat the patient and the whole purpose is to try and get some connection internally the idea is that shifts and they start to get something, some level of awareness. Um, but often that's, in fact, one of the patients described even more scary because she developed awareness, but no control. And she mm-hmm. almost she almost said, I, I can't decide which is better, having no, no awareness at all or awareness, but no control. And then mm-hmm. hopefully eventually, you, they, you know, there is some means of, of getting the control back. So... You know, this is where for me, where there is a description by a clinician of of wanting this diagnosis. If you speak to the patients who have this, they most certainly don't want it. Mm-hmm. I suppose on, on the subjects of amnesia, the uh, I suppose that feeds into this second sort of level of controversy, which is, of course, the amnesia of the episodes, let's say, of dissociation is a key feature of this uh, diagnosis. Mm. But... What about this other criticism that is made of the DID concept, which is that often patients will have amnesia for the the historical trauma that may have led to this presentation or may have contributed to this presentation? I mean, what's your experience of that? Do you find that people do have sort of amnesia for traumas in the past that uncovers throughout therapy or or not so much? Uh, My experience is they normally have something. I think we out of the 10 years of work, I only had one patient who had no memory of anything. Um, but to be honest, she she was an extremely damaged young woman who was depersonalized and derealized most of the time. So, you know, actually, and I've only ever seen one patient like that. All the rest of the patients have a level of connection. Some have full memory. And others have patchy memory of different things that don't make sense. Um, a lot of them have emotional and body memory that they don't tie up to the idea of it being trauma memory. Because, of course, in, in the general public, the idea of flashbacks and re-experiencing is, you know, the the soldier being back in mm-hmm. war, hitting mm-hmm. the deck, you know, it, 
it's all it's movie based isn't it it's a real kind of image based re-experiencing mm -hmm. and yet actually for a lot of these patients it's much more um abstract than that it's often kind of emotions and there may be some imagery but it doesn't make sense or it's a very body based thing um so there's a lot of experience of um really distressing body type experience um so it varies but i don't think bar that one patient all of them have had something they've all mm. had connection to memories mm. um some have had quite, quite considerable memory uh which then within therapy worse bits have been added to it's almost like the dissociation's taken the the edge off it as it were the worst bits but they've still been connected to all the rest of it mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I, yeah i wanted to pick up on two things from that the first is well the, the thing that i'll pick up on in a minute is the therapy and, and and how the therapy strategies for did are differing from other conditions but the thing i wanted to pick up on before that is is just to say that this is a rare diagnosis i'm right in thinking now i don't know if there is any good epidemiology evidence of how rare? I'm not sure if you're aware of any record it's being a, kept. Yeah, no. And it's a really difficult one because a lot of people ask this. And I think if we're not taught it, and this is the bit that's always slightly troubled me with this, is if we're not taught it, we make diagnosis based on what we're asking, you know, on what yeah. we know, on our, our sort of mindset of what we know, what we're taught. And we try and make sense of what's in front of us based on that, don't we? Um, and a bit like for me with my first few patients, it, it wasn't there. It didn't mm -hmm. even occur to me. And in fact, the first patient I saw, I had no idea what was going on in front of me. Um, did what you do, took it to a consultant colleague who equally went, oh, I don't know what that is. Um, the standard response was, see the patient again, because <laughs> you don't know what it is. I saw the patient again. Um, I then named with her what what happened and actually this patient wouldn't meet DID criteria because she only had one particular presentation and her response was initially mortified and then kind of went so you've seen my crazy <laughs> and it was this kind of like I, I don't know what this is but all I know is I lose chunks of time when people talk about certain things um, and for her it was a particular period of her timeline um, whenever that was brought up. And this last came as part of a concern around eating. So nothing to do with trauma whatsoever. And she was able to talk about her difficult childhood. Um, and there was one particular bit that was very difficult. Now, we started going down the line, folly, you know, you name it, all the things we've thought about, none of it seemed to fit. So you do what you do. We took it to a case conference. And there was a, interestingly, a Dutch colleague in the room who said, why aren't you thinking about dissociation? <laughs> and all of us, all of us British trained went, what, do you mean depersonalization? And he went, no, trauma-based dissociation. So off I go, read it up, and then look at it and think, oh, actually, and then considered it with the patient. And then we actually worked through the... Um, the standard the dutch team's workbook mm -hmm. and actually mm -hmm. she did well with it so you know it was an interesting journey for me because actually it was not something i'd ever asked about before mm -hmm. so my worry with this is i almost hesitate to say well is it rare or is it not rare i don't know what i know in the uk is we're not asking mm -hmm. 
I suppose that is simultaneously a uh, sort of a supportive statement for uh, DID as a condition, or you could say for lots of psychiatric experiences that probably aren't asked about. Uh, I mean, that is also the criticism of DID made by its detractors, which is that, you know, this this is a diagnosis that is made. And and I don't think any of its detractors can prove this, but I think most people probably agree this. This is a diagnosis that is made by a small number of people. And that is because perhaps because it's rare and people arrive in specialist services. So obviously, by default, they're made by a small number of people. Or it could be because a small number of people are looking for this diagnosis. What what do you think about that? Yeah, and I and I really hear that. And I guess the first few times, the first few patients I saw where I was starting to think, hang on a minute, this might be what's going on. I actually asked for colleagues to do second opinions because I I wanted to know that uh, I wasn't, you know, completely going off on a tangent um, and that I haven't just suddenly got on this new thing that was seemed quite strange and interesting. So had two very, very, you know, esteemed and probably for one of my colleagues um, and a fervent denier of the diagnosis. Um, in fact, I remember the, the opening comment being, well, that's only in Hollywood. Um, and I was like, yeah, yeah, okay, I hear that. Can you just see the patient for me and see what you think? Um, and I got a lovely letter back from him um, and the patient felt extremely validated, basically saying, you know what? In all my career, I would say, I don't think I've seen this, but I can't, I can't come up with any other explanation or diagnosis for this patient I agree with you Um, so I'm absolutely with you and I think the difficulty we have is that without without somebody you know kind of funding you know a study that allows us to look at this I don't know. I don't know where we get, you know, you're quite right. We don't want it being in specialist services because then you get people saying, oh, it's just those that are interested. But then how do we how do we achieve that piece of research Mm -hmm. across general settings um, without the knowledge and training and background for the psychiatrist in the first place? Mm. I do think it's uh, an individual just before we move on to to treatment, maybe it's it is an interesting thing about uh, dissociative identity disorder is that the public awareness of this diagnosis is absolutely massive. I I think if you go out to someone in the street and say, have you heard of multiple personality disorder? The answer will be yes. Uh, Probably more than I've heard of just personality disorder. Then, you know, the uh, so so the sort of cultural impact is huge. The scientific impact of it is tiny. Uh, and quite why that is, is is difficult because this is something that uh, you know is, is dealt with as specialist centres in multiple Western countries that are often allied with well-funded research institutions. I suppose so. Once again, a detractor would say, "Well, the reason that no research has been produced is there's nothing to find." Uh, you know, it's nonsense. I suppose the, the the converse argument to that would be that the reason, well, apart from the difficulties of research on psychological based things, uh, anyway, the uh, reason that you don't find very much would just be that there is difficulty in identifying sort of a stable and universal phenotype and as you say maybe yep. there's not the tools would, would that be yeah, well what I would your response yeah be? and i think you're right and i and i the nature of this and certainly one of the things that really surprised me with this condition is that actually you seem to have two groups of patients you seem to have oh this was and i don't know whether this is right or not this is just my experience that we seem to have the group of patients who never have functioned so they're the ones that seem to have, from an early age, ended up in CAMS, 
you know, end up in inpatient services, end up coming, you know, transferring to adults, and you know, they're they're the and they're normally labelled with um, borderline personality disorder, with if they're lucky, complex PTSD, you know, and and they they've never functioned. And then you get this really interesting group who have actually, on a surface level, functioned really pretty well, you know, to the extent that I've actually seen, um, and some of the most decompensated patients I've seen have been professionals, you know, who've actually had relationships, had jobs, worked, on the surface actually seemed quite functional. And then key events happen in their life that then seems to just blow open the boxes. Now, I don't understand that. I'm not, and this is why I kind of always say, I'm not, I'm not an expert on this in any way, shape or form. I can just say what I've seen and what seems to be really interesting. You do get, and this is where, how do you research that then? Because how do you pick up this group of people who actually otherwise are functioning and then it goes wrong? versus that group right at the beginning who are probably much easier to research who were there right from the beginning who actually are you know cams graduates and, and never function you know and what worries me is certainly how many of those you and I both know end up in you know long-term rehab in inverted commas units where that's never looked at you know, mm-hmm. and that's, I suppose, for me as a as the jobbing clinician on the ground, that's the stuff that worries me mm-hmm. in that we're not asking, we're not looking. And therefore, how many patients are we not helping? Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly several of the, the patients who were referred to my inpatient unit, it was often because they didn't know what else to do with them. Yeah. Yeah. You know, or they were so high risk. You know, and it was like, well, we, you know, we tried pick you, we've tried everything else, we'll give you a go and see what happens. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I guess the uh, thing that most people would say convinces them that a diagnosis is a standalone event is firstly that it has, you know, not a subcategory of some other diagnosis, is firstly that it has its own symptom profile. But I suppose the second thing would be that it has its own specific treatment to which there's yeah. a response. Yeah. So. Does DID have its own specific treatment and is there a response? So they there are obviously lots of crossover components of treatment. So, you know, as you would imagine for any of the 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 trauma, choose inverted commas, related difficulties, you know, emotions regulation, mood regulation, interpersonal functioning, you know, they're not that different from complex PTSD borderline personality disorder because actually the process of that dysfunction is very similar the bit that's specific to did is the what i can what i labeled because i didn't know what else to call it the intrapersonal stuff the the work of of actually getting the patient to accept what's going on for them to start to develop an internal dialogue to start to learn to communicate to be compassionate to themselves um, and to start to actually find a way of functioning. Hmm. Now, I, I suppose the interesting thing is the, the view about this is slightly changing. So you, you look at the Americans, what they do, um, they're big on um, you therapy, trauma therapy this to death until the, actually all the parts come together. You know, um, I'm not necessarily convinced that's possible. 
And I'm not actually necessarily convinced that it's good for the patient. Okay. And, it just, and it does this thing of keeping somebody in therapy for a very long time. Mm. Now, I'm much more, um, I suppose, and this is where it comes from being a jobbing psychiatrist as opposed to psychotherapist, where the view is actually where our goal is function, isn't it? Our goal is to get the patient to have a life that's fulfilling and they want to lead and and to, to be safe. So, and and the Dutch, it's really interesting. The work out of Holland is very much focused on that. So their work is very much around um, improving functioning. And the trauma work that's done is on whatever you need to improve functioning. Mm. So the idea of going in there, as you would for standard PTSD, find the trauma, process the trauma, move on. Because there's often such so much stuff in there, to start doing that actually destabilizes the patient. So how is that helpful? So the focus is much more around that internal piece of work of acceptance of yourself for who you are, of ownership of, you know, you may not like what happens, you may not remember what happens, but you still did it. Mm. So you need to start to work with yourself and any of these parts of yourself to stop that happening. Mm. And the way you do that is to actually start communicating internally, to start actually negotiating internally. And the final, the, often the final part is that kind of compassion and understanding of acceptance of yourself mm. and all parts of yourself. Mm. Um, so, that, so the goal is not necessarily to have, let's say someone is, is, is presenting with multiple personalities, the goal is not necessarily for them to not have that experience, but to find the experience less distressing. To find a way to function with it. Now, some patients, what's my, my experience, so when I first started looking at the training on this, and obviously I am a trauma therapist, I couldn't quite, you know, I couldn't quite get my head around the idea that, you know, with all of these traumas, you would you would push through all of this because I was thinking, how on earth, how long would that take? That doesn't feel right. You know, mm. all my training says that we keep somebody in therapy for as, as short a time as possible to achieve the outcome they need. Mm. So even that as a as a an idea seems wrong. Yeah, it was really what was pushed from the kind of the psychotherapy arm in America. Yet the European position was clearly quite different. Mm. Now, there are two very different health systems, aren't there? And of there course. are two. And, and the thing for me where there's always a problem is, of course, the group of patients over in America are very different from our patients, you know. And, and I think that's where a lot of this becomes quite different mm. and difficult because we're not comparing like with like the patients that we see are normally very high risk they're normally um they've got very difficult circumstances going mm. on you know um and even if they were high functioning they're really not now in fact mm. you know one of my most high functioning patients at the point she presented was extremely high risk was doing all sorts of really um you know, potentially life-threatening behaviours, um, you know, that isn't what you hear about in the American side of things. And yet it is when you speak to the Dutch who are working with this, they're working with the same sort of thing. You know, when they talk about safety first, what do you need to do to get the safety and then working down from there. Mm -hmm. So the DID specific bit is that 
bit around, you know, getting past the phobia of, of what's happening for you, accepting your diagnosis, developing the communication, developing a collaboration and developing compassion mm. to create functioning. Mm. And I guess uh, this sort of work must not be particularly widespread within the NHS. Um, there are more clinicians looking to do it. And I would, it's the bit that worries me is that actually I feel it's a much safer thing if this is in-house. And in fact, I'm de delighted that the um, the NHS England strategy for sexual abuse and assault survivors um, has brought on board the, the group of patients with complex PTSD and DRD into the strategy, which will allow for provision for treatment in NHS pathways. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's a really bad thing that what's happening is most of these patients end up outside. It's mm. it's not good. It's not healthy. Um, I worry about services who aren't CQC registered. You know, clinicians who actually aren't having appropriate supervision. Mm. Who are who you mean are, sort of private sector work? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, several of our patients came to us because they had, and often sometimes with. Um, uh, local um, NHS funding access private clinicians right. who have then opened all the boxes and then patients' risks escalate massively. You know, it it feels dangerous. The way it feels at the moment is we don't help the patients by this argument for me creates increased risk for the patients. Mm. It really does. Mm. Mm. Uh, and, and that's the stuff that worries me. It's like... I, I don't know. I don't understand it. You know, you and I both know there are plenty of patients out there who say they're depressed. And if you and I saw them, we would probably go, no, probably not. Okay. But nobody says that depression doesn't exist, that mm. we should treat it and there isn't a pathway for it. Mm. You know, the, there are, there are plenty of patients out there who have DID. There are plenty who don't. You know, and you can argue why is it that, you know, patients predominantly with personality disorder look for this diagnosis. And I think, you know, there are lots of reasons why that might be. But if we had a good assessment service, if we had agreed assessment standards, and I have argued <laughs> and, in fact, had lots of agreements with my um colleagues that this shouldn't be a single person diagnosis it should yeah. be a multi-clinician diagnosis it should not be a single session diagnosis you should see somebody over time because mm. I have certainly had one patient who was extremely convincing in her first appointment but by appointment number three not so much mm. And in fact, by the time I added in another another clinician colleague, really not at all. Mm. Mm. So, you know, I think we need to help ourselves to help the patients here. Mm. Mm. I mean, it's uh, a universal problem, I suppose, in everything in psychiatry that requires uh, multiple clinicians, multiple sessions. Yeah. It's uh, not the flavour of the month, which is, no, as I think really most psychiatrists will think, yeah. it's very sad. Uh, a very no. sad thing. And one of the easiest ways, I must admit, one of the absolutely easiest ways to pick this up is either a day service or residential, because for somebody who's trying 
to have this diagnosis, the ability to keep it up under a prolonged uh, clinical observation, it's not possible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, fingers crossed. We'd better stop there. But thank you so much for joining us. That was Dr. Melanie Temple, who's been here talking about her article, What is DID? What is it about DID? A patient and clinician perspective. Uh, Melanie, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this BJ Psych Advances podcast. For the latest updates, follow us on Twitter at the BJ Psych. To listen to more podcasts from the BJ Psych Journal portfolio, visit us on SoundCloud or search for us online.